You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We are continuing this series looking at the atonement. All the word nerds loved it last week when I said that atonement was the only doctrinal word we have that comes from the Anglo-Saxon. It's not Latin, it's not Greek, it's from our own English language. It means at one meant, and it speaks of what Jesus does on the cross to bring us back into oneness with God. It reconciles, his, his death reconciles us to God. We were enemies of God, but through his death, he has made us God's children. And what we're doing in this series, uh, four weeks leading up to and including Good Friday, this coming Friday, and then Easter Sunday, is, is looking at the atonement, looking at Jesus' work on the cross from different angles. So here's what I know. I know that all the Christians who have been Christians forever come up to Easter each year and they don't experience it with the kind of power that it actually holds because we know that story. Yeah, Jesus, he died and then he rose again. What I'm trying to do in, in allowing us to see the cross from different angles through different perspectives is kind of reignite some of that astonishment that we should experience when we think about God becoming human, dying in our place and for our sin, and then rising again to eternal life. The way I, I want you to conceive of this whole thing is um, the idea that we can look at the cross from different angles and therefore appreciate different things about it. So if you imagine the freestanding cross out the front of our church right now, if we went right up to the bottom of the cross and looked up, you would have one perspective of it. If you stood back where I am, you'd have another. If you went down to Nando's, you'd have a different perspective, right? So that's what we're trying to do in this series. And the way that we're trying to do it is by looking through the three major lenses or worldviews that exist in the glo- around the globe today. So there's three different major ways that people conceive of themselves, conceive of moral obligation, conceive of sin, you could say, using the Christian language. And we want to look through each of those lenses and try and get a different appreciation for what the cross means for those people and that, that way of thinking. So we went through all of this, took about half an hour last week. I don't want to rehash the whole thing, but just so you know, three major worldviews. Um, uh, 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 we, look, we looked last week at shame and honor culture. So this exists, broadly speaking, from the Middle East through to the Far East, uh, into the subcontinent. You have people who mainly conceive of themselves in terms of shame and honor. Uh, They conceive of moral obligation. What should I do? What should I pursue? How should I live my life in terms of what will bring honour to not just me, but my family, my community, and how what I do will avoid shame. In Latin America, in sub-Saharan Africa, in really any tribal culture, you could include... Um, you, could, you could include the South Pacific Islands in this. Um, you have uh, a fear-power dynamic. And this is where we conceive of, of how we ought to live our lives with reference to how the powers around us will respond to the thing that I do or don't do. That the world is populated by unseen spiritual powers and my life consists of knowing how to appease them such that I might be able to live a safe and prosperous life. Fear, power culture. Then there's the culture that 
I'm most familiar with, the Western culture, and we conceive of things mainly in terms of guilt and innocence. So we have a legal framework when we're thinking about what should I do, how should I do it, how should I live, we think in terms of a legal framework, and this is how naturally we see the cross. Jesus dies as an innocent person in the place of me, a guilty person, and through his death and resurrection, I am, go from being counted guilty to being forgiven and therefore innocent. That makes total sense to us in the Western context, but we miss so much of what the gospel says, so much of what the cross achieves in terms of the shame, honor, and fear, power dynamics. And so that's why I want to open this up and take a look at all of this. And we should know, before you kind of dismiss, if you're from a Western culture, before you dismiss these other ways of seeing the world as kind of irrelevant um, or less sophisticated, right? we have a a kind of... um, Western people have a kind of intellectual snobbery when it comes to these things. Um, Those of us who have come out of post-enlightenment, Western secular thinking, um, before you go too quickly jump into there and and wonder what what all this has to do with Christian theology, um, by far the majority of Christians around the world come from fear, power, shame, honour cultures. We are very much the minority. Um, it's, it's sometimes misleading because so much of the media comes from the West, the Christian media, the books, the blogs, the whatever, that we miss the point that the, by far the majority of Christians come from these other parts of the world. Let me read you a quote, and this is, uh, um, this is from a guy named Andrew Walls. He says, the faith of the 21st century will require a devout, vigorous scholarship rooted in the soil of Africa, Asia, and Latin America for the majority of Christians and now Africans, Asians, Latin Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I don't know, is the majority of our church? Maybe. It would be getting close. He says, Christianity is now primarily a non-Western religion. You know when he wrote that? 1997. That's a long time ago now. And it's only increased since he wrote that. So we really, those of us who come from a Western background, who find it difficult to see the world through these other lenses, we need to learn if we're going to understand what Christianity is. And certainly what the gospel means when it speaks to these three different ways of seeing the world. That's the point. The cross, Jesus' work of atonement, is so cataclysmic. It's so cosmic in scope that it takes in all three of these worldviews and speaks to them. Thoroughly speaks to them. So last week we looked at shame and honour culture. If you didn't get that, uh, I, I would encourage you to go and, and, t- and take a listen to it um, if you've got a spare hour. Um, I'm hoping this week might be shorter, but who knows? Who can really say? Um, but yeah, shame and honour we looked at last week. Today we're going to look at fear and power. Um, and where those two things kind of come together very neatly um, and, very, and, and in a way that illustrates something very profound is way back at the beginning of your Bible, at Genesis 3, 
where we see the fall of humanity. We see sin enter the world for the first time. This massive departure from what God intended for his world to be like happens in Genesis 3 and these two very powerful dynamics of shame and fear come together. Let me read it for you in Genesis 3, 6 to 10. It says, The woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then what happens? The eyes of both of them were opened And they saw that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's that? It's called shame. For the first time ever, human beings experience shame. The response to shame is to cover up. Where they had had perfectly open, harmonious, beautiful, intimate relationship with God without covering, without shame, without obstacle. Now, immediately, they feel shame. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And verse 10, He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. This is the point. Sin always gives birth to shame and fear. Shame and fear. Shame because I feel dirty, because I feel broken. And fear because now I can't trust those who have power. I can't trust them. I can't trust them to love me. I can't trust them to be good to me. So in fear and power cultures, we just zoom in on these these cultures, these ways of seeing the world. And of course, it's not a black and white thing. If you come from the West, it's not as if you've never experienced fear, right? We, We do. It's just not the main way we view the world and our relationship to the world. But in fear and power cultures, they're shaped by the belief that the spiritual realm is as real and as tangible in some ways as the physical realm. So the whole world, the world around me, is populated by forces that exert power over human beings. The world is just teeming with powers, spiritual powers, and they're exerting power over me. And so in order to live a safe and prosperous life, I need to appease those powers. That's why in cultures that predominantly see the world in this way, you have a lot of superstitions. You have a lot of taboos. You have a lot of rites and rituals. You have these things that are done in order to appease these forces who have power over me. And the product of living in a world that looks like that is fear. Naturally, right? If the world is teeming with forces who 
are more powerful than me and aren't necessarily for me and I need to act and live in such a way as to appease them, the product of that is fear. Now, again, if you come from the West, you have been shaped all of your life, all of us have, particularly since the Enlightenment, you have been shaped to look down your nose at cultures like these. There is a kind of intellectual snobbery that says, ah, those, those archaic people, not as advanced as we are. We might have thought like that back in the dark ages, but now we have science which has rescued us from all of that nonsense. But has it really? In the West, we have an epidemic of anxiety, right? Astronomical numbers of people experience every day deep fear, worry, anxiety, just by living in this world. What is that if it's not exactly what we've been talking about? A kind of consciousness and awareness that there are forces that I cannot see which are opposed to me, which I then need to appease in order to survive. We put a different label on it and call it anxiety. It doesn't matter what you call it. The fact is that most of the people who live in the world today are in some sense living in fear because of unseen forces that they can't control. And in some ways, that way of seeing the world is true. I mean, it makes sense. Scripture speaks of the world in this way, right? Ephesians chapter 6, this is what it says about our daily human struggle. It says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. It's a pretty evocative picture of reality. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, if he could speak to us today, us post-enlightenment, rationalistic Western people, he would say, if only you could see. If only we could peel back the veil and you could see the reality of the universe, all of your skepticism about spiritual powers being real would be destroyed evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So, what gives fuel to this fear? What gives fuel to that fear is uncertainty. It's uncertainty about who's going to win this cosmic battle, to use Paul's language. Whether you conceive of this in terms of spiritual powers, demons, evil, or whether you just call it anxiety. I'm not saying those things are necessarily the same thing. I'm saying both of them are very real. But no matter what you call it, what gives fuel to it 
What ignites it and what keeps it going is uncertainty about who the, who's going to win. Who's going to have the victory? The majority of Christians throughout church history have conceived of Jesus' work on the cross mainly in terms of the victory that it demonstrates over spiritual powers. This is one aspect of the cross that we stress less in our own kind of church tribe. We stress more what we'll look at next week, innocence and guilt, and on Sunday, the fact that Jesus is our substitute. But most of the Christians from most of church history have stressed this over all else. Jesus, in his death on the cross, is victor. The theological term used is Christus victor. Christ as victor. What I would like us to do this morning is see that that is in fact true and that we might be able to apply that truth to our lives so that we might be released from bondage to fear. I just assume, by the way, that everyone in this room, even down to the little ones, are experiencing a measure of fear and anxiety every day. Something that has been proven is that in the light of any major crisis in history, there is a period following that crisis of heightened anxiety. I've seen statistical studies of obsessive compulsive disorder, which is uh, a, a a manifestation of anxiety that whereby the person employs rites and rituals in order to gain some level of control over fear, right? Though the numbers of people suffering from that spikes. It spikes after the First World War. It spikes after the Second. It spikes after the AIDS epidemic. It spikes, right? Every time we face this global existential crisis, not just OCD, but... All types of anxiety disorders spike. What have we just done over the last 12 months but face an existential crisis? By the way, that we're not through yet. So my absolute expectation is that everyone here gets what I'm saying when I talk about fear. Here's, here's a couple of examples of how this has played out in my life, all right? Um... First with anxiety. For as long as I can remember, I have employed little rites and rituals, just like the fear power cultures. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sacrificing chickens, but I'm employing little rites and rituals to gain a sense of control whenever I feel anxious. This morning was the first time in 10 years that I slept in, and so I came to church about an hour and a half later than I normally would. I hate being late to anything. If I have an appointment at 7-Eleven and I'm late, I feel anxious. I hate it. Um, so I turn up here just out of my mind. And here's what I do. Whenever I feel anxious, I just find myself, and it's totally like I'm, there's no decision. I just find myself tapping my fingers, and I find myself tapping my fingers 
in a way that I have to, I, I have to even out which, whichever finger I've tapped with. I've got to give my other fingers the same amount of tapping time. Right? Do you, am I the only one who does stuff like this? Seriously. What is that? Well, it's an attempt to gain some control. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't give me any control over anything. But it is one thing I'm controlling, right? And so, so there it is. A ritual performed, a superstition in order to gain some sense of control over the uncontrollable over the power that is over me that I'm trying to appease. Here's another experience, not so much of anxiety, but of the demonic. And this is when I became a Christian. This is going back to 1999. I'm in the USA. Uh, I've gone through this incredible conversion experience, but I'm kind of, I'm not done yet. I don't fully understand what it all means. Um, All kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, but one of the things that happens is that I get really sick. I just, like, get smacked in the head with something. Uh, the hospital later said it was a fever of unknown origin, uh, but I just went down. And uh, I remember spending an afternoon in my cabin at this camp where I'm working, uh, and, uh, and I'm just sweating profusely. I've heaped blankets all over me, and I'm just seeing Satan in the room with me. Um, and he, like just an, a, a very existential threat. Like as far as I'm concerned, that is Satan and I'm dead um, and condemned forever. And you might say, well, you were hallucinating because you had a fever. And yeah, probably. But the, that experience continued. Uh, uh, I, I came back to the camp recovering from being sick. They still don't know what's wrong with me. This 250-pound farm boy uh, who was also in the camp, um, never seen anyone who is so intimately in tune with the spiritual realm as this guy, uh, and he just comes in and lays his big mitts on me and prays for me, and I'm healed. I just am. I'm not sick anymore. I walk out and then walk back into the cabin where all hell breaks loose. Um, during the night, I'm hearing noises in the room around me, footsteps by my bed. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing Satan and demons um, at large in the room. The guy I'm rooming with is, uh, a, it's a Salvation Army camp. He is a, a salvo, a real kind of blood and fire salvo. He is completely nonchalant about the whole thing. He's just like, yeah, it's probably Satan. Don't worry about it. And he just like talks to Satan. He's like, Satan, no one cares about you. Just... Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, that does not help me. Just but like, it, <laughs> if there's a poisonous snake in the room, someone who doesn't care about it doesn't help you. Uh, you need some other people who hate snakes to be in there with you. Anyway, so that carries on. And then these kids who are coming to us that we're doing this ministry with out of downtown Pittsburgh, these, these African-American ghetto kids are coming in, and they are just so tough. Um, like the toughest kids on earth, the most mature 12 and 13 year olds I've ever met. Um, we're taking guns and knives off them because that's just how they live. That's how they have to live. Uh, they are very aware of 
the threat, the daily threat of living in the context they're living in, we start coming into their rooms at night because they're crying, just bawling, um, totally like filled with fear and cowering in the corner. And when I ask them what, what the hell's going on, they say there's something in the room. There's some, we can see something moving around the room. And, um, and, and so I just think, yeah, you're just winding me up. Um, and then it happens the next week with a different group of kids from a different part of the city. And then it happens the following week. And then one of their bags just catches fire in the room with no one else in the room just I walk into the room and the bag's on fire and then the 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 radio that's not plugged in starts playing the top 40 and like the the whole thing has just turned into some kind of poltergeist movie it's and I'm terrified I'm absolutely terrified my buddy Bram he's not terrified at all and I am absolutely petrified I took a Bible with me that I was given when I was 13. I'd never opened it. I took it to show my dad that I was going to be okay because he was all worried about me going overseas as a 19-year-old kid on my own. And so I had this Bible. I pried it open. You know when you open a new Bible with gilt-edged pages, it kind of goes as you open it up. And, um, And I just put it on my bedside table, opened it up, and was like, do something. This is what we do. We turn to superstitions when we're afraid and we don't know who wins. I know who wins. My buddy, he knows who wins. I don't know who wins. For a whole year after that, that, that whole thing finished after about four or five weeks. It just got prayed out eventually. It was a slow petering away of all that nastiness. But for a year afterwards, I didn't sleep with the light off. No way I was going to sleep with the light off. Fear makes us act in weird ways. And it inhibits us from leading the kind of abundant life that Jesus came to give us. There are extreme examples like that, like opening the Bible or leaving the light on. Extreme examples of killing chickens and drawing circles around them and doing dances. Or there's very mundane examples like, I'm fearful about having enough money in the bank and therefore I will not be generous with anything. In every case, we are inhibited. Inhibited from living the kind of full and free life that Jesus came to give us. So how is the gospel good news to that 19-year-old kid who's scared out of his mind or to any of us today who is living under the weight of fear? How is the gospel good news to fearful people? Let me read again Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Paul says, when you were dead... When you were dead in trespasses, that is in sins, wrongdoing, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased 
the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. What Paul has in mind when he talks about Jesus' death on the cross and what it did to, the, to all of the powers that oppose us, he has in mind this thing that the Romans did called the, the Roman triumph. And this is where a king or a Caesar or a, a, a general would, have, would win this great battle. They would return to Rome and if the battle was monumental, they might be given a triumph. This is a whole set of festivities and parties the whole everyone was given the day off or a few days off and then you would have the Roman general with his army behind him parading it's called a pompa it's where you know a pomp and circumstance a pompa you would have this parade of the general in the first place if if the if the battle was really monumental he would be given divine status he would parade first, then his army behind him. They would be showered with gifts. They would in turn throw gifts of spoils from the conquered people to the people gathered around. And last of all in the train would be their defeated enemies. You would have prisoners. And then last of all, in the most humiliating place, would be the ruler of their enemies. You would have a king bound and paraded through and eventually ceremoniously executed after a good amount of Roman torture. And the point of all of this, apart from the self-aggrandizing aspect for the, for the general, was to demonstrate to your people these enemies pose no threat anymore. We just killed their king in the most humiliating way. They are no longer a threat to Rome. Paul says, that's what Jesus did. When he dies on the cross, he triumphs. He puts all of these rules and authorities, he takes, he takes their weapons from them, disarms them, and he puts them to public shame. Right? He disgraces them publicly in his death. The death of Jesus looks like a defeat to him, but in actual fact, it's the complete opposite. It's victory over all of his enemies and everything that would have power over us. The point is, you don't need to fear these enemies anymore. You can imagine why most of the Christians for most of human history have seen this as the main thing that Jesus does on the cross. Because most of the Christians for most of human history have lived terrible lives. Like lives of desperation every day. Dealing with earthly people who want to kill them and spiritual powers who are opposed to them. Living on the edge constantly. You want to talk about legitimate reasons to be anxious that's most of the Christians who have ever lived so they take this idea that Jesus triumphs over everything that can oppose them and they say that is the most glorious thing about the cross they say this is the reason why Jesus came and it is 
It's one of the main reasons Jesus came. This is how the Apostle John says it in 1 John. He says, 1 John 3, 8, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. The same guy who said, God loved the world in this way, that he sent his son, so that everyone believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That guy says, also, he came to destroy the devil's works. Destroy. Like, not mildly threaten the devil's works, but destroy the devil's works. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over his enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And you might be here this morning, and maybe that whole kind of post-enlightenment kind of thing is coming to the forefront of your mind and you're doubting whether, well, is this really a picture of reality like powers and spirits and demons and bags catching on fire and like people getting sick? And It's funny. People in other cultures around the world laugh at us Westerners for even for a second doubting the reality of these spiritual powers. They just laugh at us. Like, come and spend five minutes in a country that hasn't been doused with post-enlightenment cynicism and scepticism, and you'll see clearly this is the way that the world works. It is possible that the enlightenment, which was wonderful for humanity in opening our eyes to so much of what is true about God's world, also darkened darkened our vision in some ways. It's possible that it has blinded us to some of the reality of the world around us. The point is, if Satan is real, then you might ask, shouldn't we, shouldn't we fear something like that? If the devil that the Bible describes is real, shouldn't I be afraid? The point is, yes, the devil is real. The devil is real and he hates you. Like, not like when your kid says, I hate you, mum, because you won't let them use the iPad or something. Like, not that, not that hate. This is deep hatred. It's all he feels. It's not hatred mixed with a little bit of affection, depending on how, whether he's had his coffee in the morning. No, it's just pure hatred. For everything that God has created in his image. The devil is real and he hates you. This is the way Peter describes the devil in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says to Christians, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, right, your enemy... The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. He's real and he hates you, but the devil is a creature. The devil is a creature. Something that's very prevalent in fear power cultures is this idea of dualism 
that the world is light and dark, it's good and evil, and those two things are constantly in battle with one another, that idea has seeped into some forms of Christianity, some church communities, where we kind of conceive of this battle as God is good and and Satan is evil, and, and sometimes God lands a punch on Satan's chin, but sometimes Satan comes back with an uppercut. That is, that's nonsense. That's cartoon stuff. God is creator. Satan is creature. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Satan is not. Satan is not even omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. We can't go looking for him under every rock. I was just talking to my friend Peter Adam yesterday. He's going to come and preach a few times in the next couple of months. Wonderful theologian. Um, And he was telling me about his friend who's just gone as a missionary. I can't remember exactly where he went, but it's definitely to a fear power culture. And it was a culture where they have historically um, understood the world in terms of animism. And so they are seeing this, work, this dualistic way of seeing the world as how they see everything. So this missionary, as he's trying to disciple these Christians who have come to be saved by Jesus but still really see the world through this way, all he does, it's very simple but very powerful, whenever they refer to anything as being anything, he says to them, now, is that thing creator or is it creature? You know, my ancestors who, I, need, I just need to go and do this thing for my ancestors. He just says, is that, is that a creature or is it a creator? And they consistently give the right answer. The point is, only God is creator. Only God is all powerful. And there is no contest. In fact, Jesus has already won the only contest that matters. Yes, he is real. Yes, he, is, he, he hates you. But he's a creature, not the creator. And he is bound. Satan is bound. He's a lion, but he's a lion on a leash. I just get this image of, of India and Judah, my kids, last weekend when we were at the Werribee Zoo. We're there, you know, at the lion enclosure, and it's all just glass. You get the feeling that I'm just, the lions are right there. And while we were there, they fed the lions. And I just have this enduring image of my mind of this lion who's grabbed this enormous beef, side of beef ribs, like it was a matchstick, and carried it over onto the hood of this, you know, the jeep. And... Both of my kids are sitting right up, like with their faces pressed against the glass. And this enormous predator is on the other side. And the view, if you imagine the glass not being there, is just my kids sitting in front of this lion that could tear them to pieces without any fear. Like they were just curious. That's an interesting apex predator. Why? Because they knew they were safe. They knew that the lion was powerless to get them. Satan has been 
bound by Jesus. It's one of the key things he achieved in his victory on the cross. There's this real curious little interaction that Jesus has in Mark chapter 3. And it's where the religious rulers hate what he's doing. They see him delivering people out of bondage to Satan. They see him casting demons out of people. And they say, oh, it's by the power of Satan that he's casting Satan out of people. They're saying he, he is possessed. That's how he's got the power to cast demons out of people. And I just imagine Jesus rolling his eyes. <laughs> and then he says to them this, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, you morons. How can Satan cast out Satan? But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Now, I have been part of all kinds of prayer ministries where the way that passage was applied was that we need to pray and bind up Satan He's the strong man, so that we can then plunder his house, right? We can deliver these people out of bondage to Satan. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I don't think he's calling us to bind up Satan, to go to war with him. And I think he's saying, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Fully and finally, I'm going to, on the cross, bind the strong man. And then I'm going to plunder his house. That's exactly the way that Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4, where Jesus in his death and then resurrection ascends and gives gifts to the church. Again, it's that military picture of a conquering king plundering his enemies and then giving out gifts. Jesus on the cross took the strong man, took the ravenous lion and bound him and then stole all his stuff, stole all his power, stole all his weapons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Are you getting this? It's pretty good. It's pretty good news for fearful people. What is the most powerful weapon that Satan has over you? Fear. And what's behind the fear? What's the thing he's got over you? Shame. Yes. Guilt. Fear. Shame, guilt, fear. Shame, guilt, fear. The reason he's got that is because you're a miserable sinner. Right? So he's the accuser. He's literally caught, that's his name. His name's Satan, nickname, accuser. The accuser. That's his handle on social media, at the accuser. Right? That's who he is. That's his main weapon. It's the most powerful one, right? Like you can, I don't know, turn on radios without being plugged in, make stuff catch on fire. Like it's got limited scope. But if I can crush you with condemnation and make you doubt the goodness of God, the extent to which Jesus has saved you, then I'm doing something, then I'm, then I'm cooking. 
He's the accuser. That's the one thing he's got on you, except he doesn't really. The reason that on the cross Jesus disarmed the powers, the reason that his victory was so full is because he took away Satan's most powerful weapon. If only we would see it. He took it away. Let me reread that Colossians, just that little bit of verse 14 to 15. He said, he erased the certificate of debt. So you're carrying this debt. We're running a campaign, clear the debt. We owe all this money and it's over us. It's a chain around our neck. I've experienced that church debt like a chain around my neck from the first day I got here. It has just shackled us for so long. Well, this certificate of debt is far more weighty. It's the kind of certificate that can drag you to the bottom of the ocean forever. But he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It's a very powerful image. Jesus crucified the piece of paper with all of your sin written on it. All of the substance that Satan can work with was nailed to a cross. And then, just to compound the victory, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them. Full and final. He erased the document. He defeated the devil. So then, that's why we end up in Romans 8. In Romans 8, 34, 35, 33, 34. Who can bring an accusation? Satan's ears prick up. That's my job. At the accuser. That's my job. All right, who am I bringing an accusation against? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and interceding for us. That's why he says in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. And if there's no condemnation, then there can't be any accusation. He took all of that legal substance against us and nailed it to the cross. He killed it and there was no resurrection. Not of that certificate. Not of that debt. So where does that leave us? All right, I promise, I know I'm losing you. This is the last thing I want to say. Where does this leave us? All very interesting stuff there. What does it mean for me? What do we do if, if we were to take the leap, the leap out of Western post-enlightenment skepticism, even out of an inordinate fear and understanding of animism and dualism, if we were to take a leap into biblical, the biblical worldview, where yes, the world is dark and it's populated by forces of evil, where, yes, we have a personal enemy, a roaring lion named Satan, 
an array of demons arranged with the sole purpose of destroying us. If all of that is true, how do I respond to that? How do I live in the midst of this fear, these unseen forces around me? Here's what you're called to do, Christian. What you're called to do is to run. Don't try and be a hero. Run to your conquering king. You have a king who stands in the midst of all of this darkness and all of these powers. He stands having conquered everything. He was the only one who could win that battle. He fought it and was victorious. He carries to this day the scars of battle. Bloody battle. But he stands victorious and he beckons all of his children, come, stand with me. Find refuge, find safety with me. Run to Jesus. I remember the first real fight I was ever in. I was in year 11. I went to one of these really posh schools, one of a clutch of very posh schools in Kew. And I used to uh, travel like days to get there. Um, And it seemed like at the time, because I lived out in the sticks and all my friends had trust funds and my dad was working eight jobs just to get us to, you know, just to pay the term fees, which were ridiculous, right? And so I went, anyway, I went to the school and it was one of a bunch, it's the, it's the most densely populated private school area in the world. And so, but you had all of these rivalries between these posh schools, silver spoon rivalries, right? And, and, and that played out on, in, in school sports and, um, and in academic grades and all that nonsense, but it also played out in, on, on, the, on the mean streets of... Uh, <laughs> Of Q, and um, the mean leafy streets of Q, and my, I remember being at this party. It was for the rowing team. <laughs> oh, it just gets worse, doesn't it? It's, it was the annual rowing party, and um, anyway, we, we were at this party. It was at someone's house, and there was this ruckus out out the front of the house, and it turned out that uh, this other school had turned up, and they wanted to fight, and so. Um, uh, I, I grew up in a house of boys, and fighting was just what we did before breakfast. So I was up for it, and um, and and I remember just going straight out into the into this group of whatever these guys from from another school, and um, and my my best friend coming with me. And as soon as we walked out onto the street, he just got knocked down, smack, straight in the jaw, boom. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been hit in the face. It really hurts and shocks you. So he's just down, and I go down to pick him up, and I'm trying to carry him out of the... the this is what happens when you don't have world wars. Little boys play games like this, all right? So anyway, I'm dragging him out like he's been filled with shrapnel, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see my friend James, who is enormous. He's, one, he's, that, he's that kid who in year eight was shaving. You're just like, what? No, I'm not going to play British Bulldogs with you, you moron. 
Um, and he's just enormous. And he is literally, to this day, I see this so clear. He's just standing in the middle of the road, just going like this. Not interested in fighting. Not interested in anything, really. Just stand, and then all of these, all of our enemies just kind of going, okay, just kind of backing up. And so I just grabbed Stewie and we just, I just went over and stood next to him. And <laughs> it's like patting him on the thigh. Completely safe. That's what you're called to do. There isn't a whole lot of like, Christians got to go and take ground from the enemy and, you know, it's just go and stand with the victor. It's safe there. You don't need to fear these powers. The conquering king is where you need to go. Let me just read the last Last little passage I want to read, and then I'll, just, I'll pray. This says it all for us. This is from Ephesians 6. This is the go-to passage on spiritual warfare, which makes it sound like we've got to do a whole lot of fighting. Just, I think it'll become clear what your calling is in the midst of this battle, all right? I've highlighted it for you. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness. Righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now, this morning, right now, for all of us, because all of us are experiencing some measure of fear right now, some measure of uncertainty about who's going to win. It's good versus evil, and there are powers that are beyond our scope to control, and so we're fearful. And we respond in strange ways, trying to bridge the gap between the control that we want and the control that we have. Trying to gain and grasp and purchase some semblance of control. Lord, may we this morning release that. Not because of some she'll be right attitude. Don't worry, be happy but rather because we know that you are our conquering king and that you have already triumphed over all earthly powers. I pray for us now that as those who are part of the victorious army, we would lift our voice to praise you. The victorious army sings the praises of the conquering king. May we do it now.
in Jesus' name. Amen.